Diversity and inclusion, a hot topic in the world right now. But knowing how and where to begin to make a tangible difference can be tricky. That's why we created this podcast. By drawing on the experience of thought leaders across Canada, we hope to create awareness, showcase a variety of perspectives, and inspire courage for all of us to create more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces and communities for all. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Pham, Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. Welcome to Leader Talks. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika Kanai Bikani, and the Tsutina, the Yare Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation of Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Hello everybody, I am so excited to have the opportunity to speak with Amanda Kennedy. Amanda is First Nation from Oneida Nation and an Indigenous woman innovator and founder of two social enterprises, Yodeni and Guwasana Hawi. I'm so excited to have a chance to speak with Amanda today on the National Day of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And I really would like to welcome Amanda to our podcast. Hi, Amanda. Hello, Fagoli. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start with the basics because you are such a fascinating person and you have such a great story. Tell a listener, who are you, Amanda? Tell us your story and what led you to who you are today and these two social enterprises that you've got. Yeah, so I'm I'm First Nation from Oneida First Nation, Haudenosaunee, and I grew up in London, Ontario since the age of five. So my parents went to Indian day schools and my grandparents went to residential schools. And I myself went to an Indian day school for kindergarten. And yeah, and just so growing up in the neighborhood that I grew up was Manor Park, which is a small West End neighborhood in London. And it has a First Nations housing co-op for low-income families that are, are unable to live on their First Nations. So that's where I grew up in that co-op. And among my peers and I, growing up, we didn't understand what residential schools were. We never even knew that. We never even heard those words growing up. But I did witness my peers, you know, their parents were struggling. There was a lot of alcohol, violence, addictions, you know, incarceration, you know, always the police involved. Like, there's always a lot of stuff happening in, in our neighborhood. And us as youth, you know, we were trying to find our ways. We were trying to figure out who we are as individuals, but also because we are as Indigenous people. And we struggled with that. When we tried to go to different programs or different camps or services, you know, we were always treated really badly. We always, always had to deal with racism. Uh, we always literally had to fight. Like I had to learn how to fight when I was six years old because uh, when I first started attending a school in London, Ontario, I was getting attacked. I was getting called down. I was getting treated badly. And so my dad told me, like, this is sadly, this is just what it is being Indigenous and Native. This is what it's like to be Native in a city of London. You know, they, they hate us. They want to hurt us. So you're going to have to learn how to fight. So I became a fighter and an advocate at a very young age. When I moved to Manor Park, I started advocating even more at the age of nine and started really sticking up for my peers and I when it came to education, when it came to community events or anything like that. And as we got older, I noticed a lot of my peers were struggling even more. You know, we were starting to deal with the law now. We were starting to get into trouble and 
you know, we have a lot of police brutality. We were getting attacked again by adults and everywhere we went. So you know, we, were, we became survivors. We had to fight to survive. And it was just hard growing up. And we, and we didn't have the supports. We weren't welcomed in any other places. You know, we were always um, sent away because they knew that we were from Manor Park. And we were, were noticed that known as the troubled youth. And so they thought we were just trouble. So they just sent us away and they never would invest in us. And I witnessed what that does when you don't have that support as a youth. And I myself in 2010, one of my friends was murdered and it was devastating. And you know, and I had lost another friend and lost some other people before that. And I was losing my friends. And instead of like in a normal group of people, you know, you're celebrating graduating high school, you're getting into college and you're celebrating all of that stuff. But sadly, in my community, in my world, you know, we were celebrating that we actually made it to 20, you know, because a lot of my friends didn't make it into their 20s. And then we were same thing when going into our 30s, you know, we weren't celebrating getting houses or marriage or finishing degrees or anything. We were, you know, struggling with addictions and incarceration and suicide and murder and missing and murdered indigenous women and all of that stuff and so i noticed that how hard it was for us growing up so i started when embarked on my own healing journey and when i did that i had no support so i had to figure it out on my own and through that healing journey i developed yotani social enterprise and yotani is for the indigenous youth today that are looking for that connection that looking for that support and that healing and and want that someone to invest in them so i invest in the youth today because I've seen what it was like to not be invested in and watching my peers not being invested in as well. And I've seen where those loads, those roads end and it's in suicide, it's death, addictions, incarceration, and there's so much more awful places that that's where they're going to go. So I fight hard today to empower the indigenous youth and invest in them and, and turn to help turn their lives around and help give them an opportunity, but also help and work through intergenerational trauma and break those vicious cycles. Mm, that is very inspiring. And it's great that, you know, you used the lessons of your lived experiences and the experiences of yourself and the people around you to give you that strength and that insight to start, you know, your first social enterprise. And I can somewhat relate to that because when I came to Canada at the age of 15, you know, I have the Vietnamese and the French background. And even with that background, while, you know, it's not nearly as complex as the history of the Indigenous peoples in Canada, I experienced, you know, some exclusion and difficulties in integrating into the Canadian society. And I found that there were so few resources and support networks for me when I was a young person. And it led me to also want to work with youth and youth integration. So I'm so glad to see that connection for you and what you are doing for the young people. Can you share with us the impact that it has on those young people to have the network, to have the support from your program? Oh yeah, I see I see them grow. Like a lot of times when we have camps, so we do in person we were doing in person camps before the pandemic. And a lot of the youth that we were getting were struggling in school. You know, they were the parents were saying, the teachers are saying our kids are the bad ones or something wrong with them, you know. And I was like, just bring them, just bring them over here because all they do need is just some gloving and care. You know, all they need is just some support. They need to feel like they're, you know, they're, they're worth it. And so that's what we do. We bring them in and we do different work with them. But And we even have those hard conversations with them. We're talking about anger and suicide and addictions and, you know, what it's like growing up in our community. And it just empowers them. 
you know, it empowers them to see strength and vulnerability, you know, and see, and see resilience and learn resilience. And so just when they come through our programs, literally like the next day, the parents are like, we don't know what it is you're doing with them, but our kids are, you know, they're just, they're changing. Things are changing. Their, their confidence is going up there. You know, they're just becoming comfortable with who they are. And again, they're finding their, their, their strengths, but they're learning their weaknesses and they're learning how to change their vulnerability into strength. And I'm just witnessing that. And I see a lot of youth that come through and some have severe anxiety when they come to me and, and within a couple of weeks, they're, they're okay. You know, they're stepping in front of large groups and they're talking or I've had youth that you know, were in really educated youth. And this is one thing that I, I think is sad is that no one invests in them is that they're working at like Burger King and stuck in a in a position where, you know, they weren't utilizing their skills. And so I bring them on Yotani. I find these youth that are stuck in these different jobs that aren't utilizing their skills or aren't investing in their future. And I bring them to Yotani and I do that. So I find out what field they want to get into and I help build up those skills and those qualifications so that when they go to another job, that they're they're highly qualified. And one of the youth that I was working with this last year, she got a job with the government and got a really good job and was a really strong candidate for that job. It was pretty much, you know, they chased her down because of the experience that she has gained through Yotani and the leadership that she has gained and the confidence. And they're just like, we definitely want our team. So I have people that really want to hire my youth once they find out that they've been on the team and, and got all the training that they've been, they've been received. But I base it on what their experiences are and what they need. They don't come to Yotani and conform to what our positions are. We, we try to work with them and see how, what can they do for Yotani, but what can we do for them at the same time? That's wonderful. And, you know, you really are that space where people can bring their whole self and you have the listening ear, you have the programs, the skills building support. And it's great that you're connecting this to employment and the ability of your group and the people in your group to support individuals to build up their skills and to hear that employers are looking for individuals with that kind of support and I'd like to just bring it to the to the point of employment you know are you seeing employers reaching out to your groups are there ways in which employers can support uh, groups like yours that are doing so much work in the community uh, to build the skills and the capacity of these young people to be successful in life and in their jobs Oh, yeah. We are always looking for partnerships. We're always because I believe that we can all learn, heal and grow together. And that's the Indigenous and the non-Indigenous. That's the youth of today, the youth of yesterday. You know, we all have something to contribute. And we, I know a lot of people just want to be a part of this healing process and be like, well, how can we help? And there's always room. There's again, Yotani means it's growing. And I think I really set the bar high when I named it that because there's no limit to where we can grow. You know, if, it, if there's a service or there's something that a youth could use that we're not we're not doing and it's something a, a, a organization or another employer wants them to get involved and say, hey, like we would like to build on this or we would like to have a build on this relationship. I, I feel that's really important. You know, it's really important to not only invest in the youth, but it's also important to invest in these organizations and these employers and allies and the non-Indigenous people that want to help and want to learn. It's it's worth the investment as well, too. So I invest in that as well, too. And we, we stay inclusive. We, a lot of people say they're inclusive, but we mean it when we're saying we're inclusive. If you, if you come and you just have something that you want to help the community with or have an idea or anything, we want to hear it. 
because again, our community needs all the support we can get. We need as many programs out there for youth. There's no competition. We should just be supporting each other because there's so many youth that need help that we need. We're all needed out there. So yeah, we're always talking about partnerships and let's join together and and help these youth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of employers are listening right now to your point of view and your suggestion. And I think some of them are probably wondering, so how do I start? What can I do to go into these partnerships? And for those organizations that haven't had any relations with Indigenous communities or Indigenous groups, Amanda, do you have any suggestions as to what they can do, what they can consider? Well, I have another second social enterprise called Gawesinahawi. So through Gawesinahawi, I also do consulting because there is some agencies that have never had experience with Indigenous people and know that there's training that needs to be done. Because so what we do with Yotani, anyone that comes on the team gets training by me. So I have sensitivity training and witness and allyship training for working with Indigenous people. So everyone on my team is trained so that they way they're they're comfortable and but also aware of like what they need to be careful for, but also where the um, supports and resources are. So I'm always doing that either if you're on the team and you're volunteering, you're a youth that's working with us, we train, but we, I also have training through Gawesinahawi and I also do consulting as well too. So there's organizations that reach out and say, we, we're like, maybe need three more steps, you know, before we feel like we're really ready to work with the Indigenous community. And, and that's where I come in as a consultant, Indigenous ed- educator, knowledge keeper. And I, I help with that process as well too, because... Again, I, I know that it's it's safer and it's just where I do the work is so that way I know that I'm confident that when the employers and people connect with Indigenous communities that they're more mindful and aware and listening. Those are really good points. In fact, you know, when we work with employers at CDI, we often talk about the need for each and every one of us as we're working towards eyelashship to be our own scholar and to really learn new knowledge about other communities that we seek to ally with. And that includes a lot of self-awareness, self-reflection about who we are as cultural beings, and learning about the other cultures. So in this particular case, you know, the indigenous culture, right? And the, the differences and the similarities between that and the Canadian workplace culture and the specific culture of the organization where individuals would would be employed. So I think your point about just educating, uh, learning, cultural sensitivity training are really important. And uh, one of the first steps probably in building awareness and building better relationships between employers and communities. So that's a great point. Thank you so much for that. I I, I want to go back into our original theme, October 4th, you know, the National Day of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And actually, just to expand on that as well, it's also a day of action for missing and murdered two-spirited LGBTQQIA people. So we've expanded sort of the definition because I think we want to be as inclusive as possible. And I want to ask you, Amanda, what that, does this day mean for you as an Indigenous woman? Well, being an Indigenous woman, this issue with missing and murdered Indigenous women has been a serious issue. Well, even I do history, I teach history, and it goes back to the 1400s. So it's been a serious issue since settlers came to the land. 
And sadly, you know, we keep speaking out about it on my social media. I have a lot of Indigenous communities on there. So sadly, I always see posts of women going missing, you know, and it's always the same story that they're posting it on social media because they're reaching out to the police services that are in their area and they're reaching out to the different organizations that are supporting this, but something's stopping them from moving forward and really speaking the truth. And I think it's great that, you know, there's things like this, like podcasts where people are creating space for Indigenous women to come forward and really speak this truth, because this is a truth that really needs to be heard. And it's something that the Indigenous women are really struggling with. Like even I myself, I, I have a target on my back. You know, I can't go downtown. I can't go into certain areas. I can't go anywhere at nighttime. I can't walk down pathways. And it's just a reality because especially when I was living in Toronto, Ontario, like I had to fight hard to become, um, not become a missing and murdered Indigenous woman. I, I was attacked. I was approached by the sex trading industry and trafficking industry. And I fought hard to stay away from it and protect myself. And I actually helped other women get away from that lifestyle. But it was a really scary time. It was really hard. And so it's a truth that's there. It's a truth that's been there. And it's a very strong, harsh truth that's happening everywhere across Canada, especially in the main, in the biggest cities. And yet, you know, there's still not, a, the awareness isn't matching the tr- how much work is being said. So it just so much more awareness needs to be brought forward because our Indigenous women are not safe. Our young Indigenous girls are not safe, even on our First Nations. I heard the other day that we had someone approach our young girls, a, a car approach our young girls, and it's scary. So now we have to tell all our young girls, we have to have people driving around our First Nations, checking odd cars. So like every time we see an odd car, we post it on our social media now and like, be aware these people are in our community because they're trying to steal our girls. And a lot of people are like, what, this isn't happening, but yeah, this is our reality. And this is something we're always talking about on social media. We're always talking about the women that are missing and someone else's, you know, daughter's missing. And when a daughter, when a youth goes missing, we get so scared. And maybe the police are looking at us like you're overreacting, but you don't know the reality that we have to walk as Indigenous women. I was doing a workshop and they wanted to bring in Indigenous women downtown. And I said, it's not safe at nighttime. We need men there to walk the women to the bus stops and and to this to their cars and the the non-indigenous women there was white women in the group and they said well we'll walk you to your cars you know and i'm like well they won't harass you they didn't understand it they're like i don't understand like we can walk downtown yes because no one's going to hurt you because it's going to be a serious issue if someone does but yet when someone hurts us no one cares we're silenced our family is silenced our community is silenced and we're forgotten by society but our communities and our families don't forget us and so that's why even when i leave i always have to tell my family where i'm at i always got to check in after a couple hours because in our reality we our women go missing all the time our our women and girls go missing all the time and i could literally walk out my door right now and go for a walk and go missing because i'm an indigenous woman wow You know, this is a harsh reality for people to hear. I think for a lot of folks across Canada, honestly, there is very little awareness about what's going on. It's almost another world. And a lot of Canadians, I am sad to say, probably think this is not as big of an issue as it really is. And so 
I think your voice, Amanda, and you speaking the truth and other individuals like that needing to have that national platform to really just let people know across Canada this is a true, real threat, an ongoing threat to the safety and the well-being of Indigenous women and girls. And this is a real issue. So, I mean, for myself and for other individuals who seek to be allies, who seek to support and address this cause in a meaningful way, what do you think we should be doing? What do you think are some of the steps that we can take, whether it is in a community or whether it is in the workplace? One thing I always saying with, with any situations, always educate yourself. There's a lot. There's the missing and murdered Indigenous women report. There's a huge report that was made that gives you so much information that you can access. And so it's 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 actually taking the time to educate yourself. But and also what is so important is what's happening right now. Like what you're doing right now is creating space for me to speak truth. Not bringing in someone that studied it, that's non-Indigenous, that studies, you know, what the issue is, but an Indigenous woman that has either been in that world, had to fight to get out of that world, or, you know, it's women that have those true stories because I feel like lived experiences you can't dismiss. When if you bring someone in that just gives facts and figures, you know, people can dismiss that. It's easy for them to ignore that. But when you hear someone's truth and you hear that story, that's not something you can just dismiss. And I think that's what needs to happen is space needs to be created for us Indigenous women to finally come in and speak our truth and be heard and feel supported. And the more people that are talking about this issue, the more people that are aware, it, it makes the issue weaker because our awareness fights it. And so that's when we're more awareness. Again, of the Indigenous community, we talk about this all the time. This, we're fully aware of what's happening. We don't, we don't need to be educated on what's happening here. We know by being Indigenous women, we know what's happening. And Indigenous men and people. But it's the people that aren't aware that need to bring in the people from it. Lived experiences that need to be shared with the people. And that there is where we'll create space for healing, learning, and growing. Mm. That is so good, you know, providing the space for the women to be heard and to share the stories. And it reminds me of the growing number of organizations and institutions across Canada that are trying to make space for those voices to come alive in their own workplaces. We're hearing more about, you know, organizations hosting listening circles and really trying to hear about the lived experiences of the people who work with them, of the clients, of their students, of their stakeholders. And I think that is a step in the right direction, but too few organizations are doing it. So this is a call to action, I think, for workplaces across Canada to really heed what you're saying, Amanda. Provide a safe space to hear the voices and the stories of the women, the girls, the two-spirited individuals who are experiencing this on a regular basis. And it makes me think of, you know, the fact that every worker, every colleague that we have in our workplace who's Indigenous probably knows directly someone in their family or in their community who is intricately involved or victimized by this situation. And honestly, 
we know that this is within the broader social context that is shaped by systemic racism and colonialism. So workplaces can play a huge role in educating and in creating that safe space for dialogue to take place. What do you think should be some of the key leadership traits or attributes that you would like to see of leaders of organizations to help facilitate, you know, these kinds of dialogue and the learning that needs to take place across workplaces? Well, one issue that I'm really dealing with in London, Ontario right now with the organizations in the city of London and universities is that, yes, they're trying to create this space, but they're not being mindful of what this space is doing. So one thing, if you're going to create space for Indigenous people to come in and you want to hear their truth, have actionable items, have a plan of somewhat of a plan are ready to make a plan of action immediately after. Because a lot of people are coming to us and myself too, and they're creating this space. And they, again, they think that they're doing the right thing and it's their front line that's bringing the people in, but it's the leadership that doesn't want to change their systematic way of doing things. So really leadership needs to dismantle their own systems right now. And right now everyone's like, well, how do we help the indigenous people? Well, you can help us by looking at what your system is relied on and how is it like working and how is it creating what is it creating for the Indigenous people? Is it creating space or is it creating barriers? Because a lot of these places that are trying to do the work, they're creating more barriers for us. And they're coming to us and they want this information. Like even me, I had a meeting just later before this with a politician and she's like, well, I want to know this and that and this and that. And I'm like, why though? Are you going to give, are you going to help me with these situations? If not, I'm not going to take my energy I'm tired. I've been working all week on with leadership on having these conversations. Unless action is going to come from these conversations, I don't have time for these conversations. So it's really respecting Indigenous leaders as well and, and the people and being mindful that if you're going to pull us into the space and you want to hear this truth and be ready to do something with that truth. Because again, from since the settlers came for over 600 years, this relationship's been broken because we have people that want to do research and survey and come to our communities and, you know, we want to be diverse and inclusive, but yet their systems are set up to hurt us and their systems hurt us as soon as we come in that space. So it's you really need to reflect on if you want to be inclusive, then you really need to check and see, okay, well, what are we doing? How are we operating? And are we inclusive enough that we're going to be able to invite Indigenous people in our space and will they be safe and protected? Or are we going to do more harm than good? Because sadly, that's what's happening is it's a lot of harms being done because, again, they're not taking the right approach. And if so, if you're just because if you're like, oh, I really want to learn about this, this is interesting. Go do your research then and don't bring an Indigenous leader in unless you're an organization that says, okay, well, let's bring in an Indigenous leader that works with youth because we're ready to run youth programs working with Indigenous youth. We just need consultation on the best way to go about it. But don't pull in Indigenous leaders, Indigenous people and communities just so that you can hear how hard this is on them and then not come back with actionable items or do anything with the, with the information that you've just obtained. Because again, you're doing more damage than good by doing it that way. Thank you. That's a hard lesson for individuals to hear and to learn and to apply. But I think it's absolutely foundational what you just said, Amanda. It's not just an optical thing that we're doing, listening to people and learning, but we have to move from listening to doing. And that requires accountability. And you're so right. Leadership 
has to demonstrate that ability to be willing and open to really unpacking hard things that are systemic in nature that may have been going on for decades in their organization. And so it's going to take time, resources, a lot of hard conversations, and them holding other people, other leaders, project managers, policymakers in their organizations to account. Board members. Board members, yes, to account for what they are doing or not doing. That is so insightful. Thank you, Amanda, for that. Any last word for employers that you would like to share with them before we wrap up the podcast? Yeah, one thing is, again, this is hard stuff to hear, you know, and it's not easy. But at the same time, it's it's what's necessary. But what is really important, too, is that we take care of ourselves through this. You know, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, regardless, you know, it's difficult times right now. So we need to take care of ourselves. We need to do that self-care especially if you're on this learning journey and you want to work with Indigenous communities, you really need to make sure you're doing the self-work. Make sure you take care of yourself because it's hard and it can get heavy. And we don't want people to walk away, you know, hurt or damaged. We want them to walk away empowered and feeling supported too as well. So take care of yourselves and and just be mindful. Thank you, Yonko. Thank you so much. That was Amanda Kennedy from the Oneida Nation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Leader Talks. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. To stay up to date with Leader Talks or to find out transcripts of previous podcast episodes, please visit ccdi.ca slash podcast.